0: This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by Wilmington Healthcare. Wilmington Healthcare helps customers turn high-quality healthcare data into meaningful intelligence that supports their business objectives and the improvement of healthcare. Wilmington Healthcare's trusted, in-depth and compliant data, backed up by world-class delivery platforms and unrivaled UK healthcare expertise, enables NHS supplier organisations to achieve sustainable outcomes and improve competitive advantage visit www.wilmingtonhealthcare.com or contact them directly at info at wilmingtonhealthcare.com for more information. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTalk Podcast, where we discuss the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm your host, Ian Bolland, Acting Group Editor of Life Sciences at Rapid News. On this episode, I'm joined by Ollie Hudson, Content Director of Wilmington Healthcare. Ollie has written extensively for MedTech Innovation News about the NHS procurement landscape and the effect it has on MedTech. We delve into that by discussing the nuances and changes regarding procurement. We also talk about the new NHS for MedTech and Wilmington's State of the Nation report, which there is a link to in this podcast description. First of all, yeah, uh, thank you for joining us on the MedTalk podcast. Um, you've written pretty extensively for MedTech Innovation about NHS procurements, and I think that's going to be a lot of what we cover today. Um, it seems that during the pandemic, Everyone became an expert on procurement when we heard stories of uh, PPE contracts and the like. Mm. But I think you're in a really good position to explain the nuances. But first of all, and I think a, a good place to start actually following on from all the pandemic thing, is the, is the value-based procurement article that you actually wrote for us. Because beyond what it says on the tin, can you take us through the nuances of it?
1: Well, value-based procurement has been around for a while as a concept And it's a good one in the sense that it answers that age-old battle between medtech industries and healthcare systems um, where on one side you've got uh, industry saying here's a great product that gives you these outcomes and these good things for patients and patient experience and, uh, and so many things that have taken time and research to come up with that will make your lives easier. And then they show it to the healthcare systems and the healthcare systems go, we can't afford it. And that's more or less been the theme of every procurement conference I've been to for 15 years. So you need some kind of mechanism to allow manufacturers to show different kinds of value and healthcare systems to appreciate different kinds of value and not just costs in order to ever get anywhere with innovation. So there needs to be something like value-based procurement to smooth that process. So it's been big in the Department of Health. Um, They've written about it and how they want to do it and support it. It's in NHS supply chains thinking now and I think over the course of the next few years, we're going to see new procurement systems using VBP as a way of getting better outcomes, getting better value, increasing the, the range of innovation that they use. Um, and I'm, I count myself an optimist about it in this case, because it's been something that's Several manufacturers have said, yes, that it's all talk. Um, We like the idea of VBP, but it hasn't actually worked. Mm -hmm. But we're already beginning to see VBP principles being applied to um, large-scale procurement and the way many hospitals are thinking about techniques in a different way. Um, They're thinking about pathway rather than product. They're having to do this because of things we'll, we'll move on to talking about later, I'm sure about what's happened with the backlog and the environment um, post COVID. Um, but when you think about uh, the population as a whole and how you're best going to serve them, which is what's supposed to be trying to do, it doesn't always work just to get the lowest cost, lowest unit cost in an item. You'd have to think about the whole pathway and the role of the patient and how every element of the pathway is gonna stack up and cost up and how it's going to work within the system as a whole. And that's where VBP really comes into its own. There's a strong element of it, and this is explicit in what they're talking about it in the websites, um, that it needs to involve whole system thinking. It's another thing we'll probably end up talking about later. What does that mean and how can MedTech use it? So to answer your question, I think it's um, a very interesting area and we're going to see more of it. And although I'm cynical about many things, I can see the value in value-based procurement.
0: I think you actually mentioned in one of your pieces that uh, one area where value-based procurement can be useful, concept and edtech, is the use of novel devices, for example. And But you also mentioned the importance of engagement. I think, I think that can be Personally, I think that's a really important aspect in, across medtech itself. If you, you need, in fact, you need to actually get in front of someone to really show the true value, whether that's to the patient or to the health system itself. Before, before you can actually flesh out what what kind of I don't know what kind of contract that you have got with, with these providers, for example.
1: Yeah, Well, you need that real world evidence, don't you? You need it to be evaluated within the whole pathway. Again, there's a lot of work going on around that at the moment. So with things like GURFT, the Getting It Right First Time programme, you're seeing clinical engagement, clinical input into what the current range in the market does, the differences between each different type of device, and most importantly, what represents the best value. Um, And that's value in terms of value to the patient, value to the clinician, Value to the organization and value to the system. So they're looking at all of these things within that GURF model now. So value is quite, it's becoming more nuanced and complicated, and, and the understanding of what
0: value might mean is changing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, th- you also mentioned about obsession over short term cost over long term value. I mean, I think this actually. Th- it probably filters into the way that the health service has been run, probably mm-hmm. since 2010 onwards. Certainly since the financial crisis, in terms yeah. of having to justify every penny. Yeah. But do you, do you see with more innovation, like the sands, maybe shifting a little bit in terms of um, in terms of that approach? Because I know a lot of the focus has been on the bottom line, but when new technologies are being developed, mm. is the Are those with the purse strings looking at things from a different angle? Well, they
1: are. I mean, not least because they've seen that innovation saves time and money, as we've seen in the pandemic. And it allows clinicians and systems to do things they've never been able to do before. So if you take telemedicine and the digital revolution, that has sped up um, healthcare by 10 years, really, that's where I expected us to be and how much we're using it and the proportion of appointments that are digital and the number of consultations that are remote. I thought we'd be there in about 2030, the rate the NHS goes, because they've been talking about incorporating all of this stuff for years, but it never happened. But it took the pandemic to turbocharge it, and and now it's everywhere. But they've seen with that innovation the possibilities for changing pathways completely and and changing the way we do healthcare uh, in a way that's far more efficient, frankly, because you don't need people coming into hospitals all the time. You don't need outpatient appointments to be in hospital, really. There's no reason why they couldn't be remote when it's just a a consultation. Um, So that's an example of, of innovation being seen as, yeah, we get this now, we see that we need to do this, we can't just talk about unit costs of this or that because we need to be thinking in a completely new way of how we do healthcare. So that's, I would say, much more the environment at the moment than it was pre-pandemic, certainly. And so the other thing you mentioned about um, you know, the last decade being one where there's been an environment of cost-saving, we still live in the shadow of quip, as it was uh, back then. And it's not gone away, you know, and I note that we've just had another demand on efficiency, the service which has doubled. Mm-hmm. So um, last year, they were supposed to make 1.1% savings. Um, and this year, it's supposed to be 2.2% savings. And you have to add that on everything else that the NHS has got to do, clearing the backlog and trying to find enough staff and doing its integration program and all that. On top of all that, it's got this efficiency agenda. Um, Yeah, it's tough, the NHS, and the NHS has always had to fight hard for every penny and be lean. So you can kind of get into their heads when they do come back at MedTech saying we really don't have the money for this. I'm just going to say, though, that what's changed in that is that they've seen that actually the technology is the saving. Mm-hmm. The innovation is the saving.
0: I I was literally about to ask the question about: Is could yeah. technology be the centerpiece of this efficiency drive? I think that's the change. Yeah, right. that's fascinating. Um, when you, you you've also mentioned, I think before before this recording of, of uh, the new NHS for MedSec, which sounds pretty open ended. So I'll allow you to define that if you don't mind. So. I do
1: try to boil things down for my readers and for my audience in Wilmington Healthcare. And I've got some points about this new NHS environment that I try to bring across to show why I'm saying that. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to say, oh, it's the new NHS landscape for medtech. Listen to me because I will tell you what is new about it and how it affects you. But I think this one is genuinely different in a number of uh, deep ways, deep systemic ways that MedTech won't really have seen before. Um, And in some kind of practical ways as to say, how do we actually engage with this landscape now? Things have changed. So I've got a lot of MedTech clients that are quite traditional in their approach. So it's a A face-to-face sales operation really you try to uh, contact as many people many clinicians and their teams that would use this device or this innovation you get them to buy into it and then the rest of the sale is all through procurement maybe sort of up to 60 70 percent of your time getting the contact contracts through and then renewing it and innovating it and maintaining the relationship with the procurement department and that's kind of it. Um, But there's a lot going on in these these systems in the hospitals that make that not quite what's going to happen in the future. So even if you take that as a basis as the medtech sales model, things are changing. So you've got environmental changes, one. Structural changes, two. Organisational changes, three. Operational changes, four, and transactional changes, five. So this is how I I boil it down. And the environmental changes is to do with essentially um, what's happened after COVID and the backlog, because that is front and centre in the NHS at the moment. So if you're trying to sell a device, you're selling a device to people whose priority is that. It's about pressures on them staff pressures time pressures resource pressures having to see patients um, and get them in and out of the doors as quickly as possible patient throughput so that is all massively taking up the bandwidth of your customer at the moment so if you're trying to get them to evaluate something new think about something in a new way it is a difficult time so that just has to be accepted that's one And then two, the structural changes. That is to do with the way the NHS is reorganising itself. And that has implications for things like who are your key customers? Uh, Where are the hospitals that you are selling to? How do they group themselves? And that's all been affected by integration. So the MedTech stakeholder map isn't just this hospital or that hospital. It's a group of hospitals It's a a group of purchasing points. It might even have some kind of formal uh, association of uh, aggregated procurement. They might all be procuring something, particular device, particular pathway, particular category altogether. So you have that. And it's not just procurement, but it's the way they think as well, their governance arrangements, um, which services go where, all of that. That's all changing at the moment. Then with the organisational stuff, that by that I mean the people within these um, new setups, they're changing too. So where they work, they might be at a hot site doing uh, emergency work at one point, and then they might be in a cold site doing elective work at another time. And we have different sites for different things. So the customers themselves are on the move. And I would apply that to procurement departments as well. So we're supposed to have ICS level procurement now. Um, Every ICS, integrated care system, is supposed to have a designated procurement lead and they are supposed to organise all the trusts in that system to have a single voice on procurement and a single staffing team on procurement. Big change as well. With the operational stuff, it's point four, that's pathways, and that's how medicine itself is being delivered. Um, so these new pathways are supposed to not be hospital-centred. They're supposed to be uh, bring care closer to home. They're supposed to have the patient at the centre of everything and their experience at the centre of everything. And the pathway is not just about seeing people in hospital. It's um, treating the population in the whole system as best as you possibly can and with digital arrangements as well. And then the final one is the transactional arrangements, how things are paid for. So we've got a new system of payers and who's responsible for paying for services, for acute services, (coughs) for specialized services, all that's on the move as well. So the person, the the grouping that you thought might've been paying for your device last year is changing. So when you've got all of these changes at the same time, That's what I mean by a new NHS landscape for MedTech. I think there's something there this time. And it's more than just moving names around or sizes of organisations. There's some quite fundamental changes going on there.
0: Yeah, I mean, throughout your answer there, I I was thinking about the amount of times that we've seen lots of discussion, Mm. especially in the national press, about NHS reorganisation. And it... I'm not entirely sure if this is a direct effect on well, MedTech or even Pharma or Life right, Sciences, anyone that's trying to get an innovation into the NHS, but that constant change is probably not doing the industry any favours as, well as, as much as anything. But
1: hmm. well, I don't think the industry necessarily changes to match. The industry just sort of does what it does. Um, and sometimes something comes along and it's greeted with a bit of confusion but not mm-hmm. a lot of cultural change or operational change or ways of thinking differently about how they could do the sales model. So I'm coming up against that with some of my clients at the moment that really want to and see that that is a necessity um, and it can't just be about door knocking anymore. There has to be a, a wider, more integrated approach themselves with omnichannel and support from um, sales reps um, but a, a different approach to doing things because the the old one isn't really working. for everything I've just said, staff staff don't have the time to do yeah. this in the, in the way that they did before. They've so got to think outside the box a bit. With it. I
0: mean, ap- apologies for asking the obvious question here because you know it's sort of my job to play dumb as the as the questioner sometimes. But how much of a problem is that? Not not. But adapting to the change like you said they just seem to shrug and they carry on regardless well this is sales isn't it Yeah. if you
1: want to increase your sales you have to get with this new program really and not complain that you know you can't get access um, which I have heard um, when that access is just not going to be available for the reasons that we've just been talking about um, there have to be different ways it has to be customer led clinician led what's most convenient for them, what do they most like, what are their preferences and how they uh, get information and then are followed up with it and then set up evaluations and all of that. It must be about what they need and what they can do physically.
0: Okay. Um, Apologies if we're going over a little bit of old ground here, but what practical steps can companies that are trying to sell their innovations in the NHS when, when adapting to these changes what, what practical steps can they take because it, it all sounds well and good saying these are the changes you've got to adapt to them. So what do what, what steps would what top steps would you recommend that you put into place? Okay so I do full
1: plan of uh, business intelligence on a region by region level um, looking at who the purchasing uh, purchasers are how it works then there, um, what the demographic needs are, uh, how the pathways are working, uh, what specific pain points each territory has. So proper business intel. So when you do go in for those conversations, you're armed with facts and reasons to engage, Mm -hmm. which I don't think is necessarily happening as much as it could be with companies. There are also uh, clinical networks and clinical champions that can be accessed that are forming alongside ICSs. It's well worth looking at these clinical networks, seeing where they sit in terms of the health political hierarchy and what kind of weights they might have, pulling levers in terms of changing pathways, introducing innovation, um, addressing the local procurement needs uncovering who they are. And then a third thing that you could do is work with the academic health science networks. So if you've not come across them before, there's 15 of them. Their specific role is to build a bridge between industry and NHS procurement. They'll help you find real-world evidence. They'll help you build your business case. They'll help you uh, find the target clinicians you need to speak to to get it into the system. And they've had a bit of a second wind in the past couple of years or so um, with uh, new amounts of funding and uh, being integrated into uh, the policy. Um, So I would say
0: AHSNs are definitely worth exploring. Okay. Can we move on to the environmental factors and how this can change things? Because obviously there's probably been reforms that have been planned for ages, reorganisations that have been planned for ages, they've probably been and Covid's been the curveball almost. So how do how do companies manage to get in front of key decision makers in light of what's happened in the past two years because uh, are these key decision makers willing to uh, it's probably a really bad word but to receive these people in terms of let, let's have a look at what you got or Yeah, well, I think
1: it depends on on what the product is and what the value offering is, really. Um,
0: I'm glad you said value there because I was actually going to link it back to the value proposition. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: all about that. And if you look at what products are getting big thumbs up and big ticks from these systems at the moment, they are game-changer-like products which can really change the pathway and the way that patients are treated Um, So it's not just a sort of, well, this product is marginally better, it results in fewer revisions or fewer exacerbations. That's all great, and they want that, but it's more like, can we do this technique in a completely different way that will tick all our boxes of patient experience, shortening the length of stay, shortening the pathway, allowing more patient independence, all of this stuff. so you got some of the uh, products that have been given funding by the med tech funding mandates recently, mm-hmm. they seem to tick those kind of boxes. So they change the way surgery is done. A lot of them are surgical systems rather than products themselves. And they can um, massively improve outcomes within surgery and they're getting the funding and they're getting the kudos. Things like that, and I could point to TAVI as well, which Wilmington's done a lot of work with transaortic valve implantation, uh, which is a device, yes, but it's also a technique mm-hmm. and it's also a way of completely doing heart surgery differently, um, which turns it into a massively invasive from a massively invasive operation into something that's much more keyhole and bearable and has better outcomes and faster recovery times and overall when you add that to all the heart patients that are having their their heart surgery this year that's going to be a lot of value so it's that kind of thing that they're looking for at the moment
0: Okay, I sort of want to um, bring this little uh, section of the podcast to an end but I think uh, the, the procurement element as has been in the headlines for, for a couple of years, like I said, at the top of the section because of, of COVID. What, and, and apologies if I'm sort of repeating the question from before, but what nuances have you seen that we probably won't see in the general public that, are, that, a, that could probably best explain the certain decisions that we've seen taken over the past couple of years?
1: Well, if you're talking about some of these big... Um, controversial procurements we saw over um, the pandemic, You know, a lot of it is about panic buying mm-hmm. effectively and needing to get the numbers there and one can have some sympathy because n- no one really knew how many masks or items of PPE we'd need at that point. It was a very scary time. Um, yes, there were interesting things going on with routes of supply shall we say, Um But I think overall that's been a good thing in some ways because there is a lot of um, uh, talk of rationalising procurement now and giving the right people ownership of it. I think it didn't make national procurement look very good, that whole episode. And so there's been more of a push and a move to devolving some of that responsibility to ICSs. So I'm pro this. Uh, I'm pro sort of local ownership of the things that they need to buy in the same way that I'm uh, pro local ownership of, uh, of healthcare in general. I think it's good. It's better that where you are makes the healthcare decisions for you and your family and the people around you because they know what's available rather than have diktats from the top. So you've had that in national procurement. You've had that to a degree with NHS supply chain um, doing its thing through the towers um, and it's made some savings but it's not always been particularly popular with uh, hospitals at, at trust level um, or with industry really because it, it, you end up getting locked out because of these big framework agreements and then that's it if you're not on the framework agreement it's very difficult to break through in lots of categories um, so we, we know now that they're retendering for this um and we'll have new suppliers national suppliers in the towers um from 2023 april i think onwards um so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that and who goes for it and if they end up with a new reading of what the towers actually are and it's not just sort of one company doing everything but actually there are different tower suppliers so that's a watch this space i think
0: Okay, well, you mentioned the uh, the local element there, and I think you actually segue nicely onto something that that Wilmington Healthcare has recently done in terms of its State of the Nation report, because within that there was a, uh, and I like quote, a sharp regional disparity amongst um, a- amongst certain parts of the country. I mean, the question I've got written down here is, is this: is this a sign of healthcare inequalities depending on geography? But obviously, does the 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 elements of uh are, are these regions actually getting the kind of access that to certain innovations and treatments that they need i just think the one truism you can
1: say about the nhs at the moment is there is variation mm-hmm. everywhere and especially access um, to to services sometimes you can see why that is you know obviously in rural areas it's going to be affected but also in urban areas, we're seeing it as well. Um, So uh, what can I say about it? What can MedTech do about it other than understand that this is a thing? And I would recommend actually looking at our State of the Nation report to see where those access issues are most acute,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and then drilling down further into that data and seeing, well, this particular area, let's say uh, North Cumbria and Northumberland, um, has an issue with uh, treating patients in certain surgical categories because there aren't the hospitals there. You've got um, an older population, you've got poor transport links. Um, What can we do to address this? How could our techniques, how could our products help a population like that? What are we offering vulnerable patients? What are we offering patients with restricted access? How would it change their lives to use our product in this situation? And try to think themselves into the lives of these patients and see what it looks like when their product is part of that story.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, from the little bits of advice that you gave earlier on, it feels like even though there's probably some alarming elements in terms of the health inequalities. It's also an opportunity for innovators and uh, within life sciences to get, try and get in front of the decision makers, take on the advice that you've actually said Mm. and demonstrate how you can make a difference. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Within all of this, and I know we've predominantly focused on MedTech, but we are the MedTalk podcast, so we, we do delve into the pharma side of things as well. Mm. Um, there is a couple of really striking and statistics, including the increase in spend on antidepressants, and a large area of spending in primary care is in, is in diabetes drugs. We, but there's also a sharp rise in the spend on statins as well. Mm. We, to me, the layperson that, that, that sees that. A mental health crisis um, unfolded as, as a result of COVID. Yeah. Um, The, the antidepressants increased, uh, though, though striking, it doesn't surprise me. But was there anything in those areas that surprised you? Well, the data that we were
1: looking at showed quite clearly what the pandemic specifically had done to prescribing. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just overall prescribing trends, but it was what had happened over 2020 and twenty one. Uh so just for example like diabetes was a big area of spend but diabetes has always been a big area of spend and we've had a diabetes epidemic going back to at least the beginning of this century in terms of increased spend on on medicines but it was the the antidepressants statins to a degree and but for me it was also gastrointestinal drugs um that that spiked during the pandemic that I found newsworthy. Um, mm-hmm. So the, ma- the biggest one was antidepressants, obviously, and the story did seem to be when we followed it up with GPs um, in Health Service Journal that published an exclusive on it. Um, uh, it was all about the mental health issues and that the pandemic had caused large uh, numbers of, of people to experience depression and anxiety and other mental disorders. Um, but also the lack of exercise, um, the staying in did have an impact on statin prescribing, perhaps. I don't, you can't sort of say there's a causal link there, but over that time... There's a correlation. Yeah, there's, there's yeah. some kind of connection. Um, and the same with gastrointestinal. If there's no connection at all between sitting on the sofa and not being able to go out... Why is it those particular categories um, so it is to do with you know, less exercise less healthy um, lifestyles that we're living in in my unclinical opinion um, but that's that's what seemed to be uh, what the data was suggesting
0: but from what from what you've shown up with the, with the data in, in terms of all this prescription or all of these yeah, Antidepressants being prescribed, statins, etc. Mm. And then, you, if you link it to um, people staying in or lack of exercise, you're probably not keeping themselves healthy. There is this market, perhaps, for med tech to step forward in terms of, for example, we, we see plenty of med tech integrated into our own consumer devices like iPhones, where you can monitor your blood pressure. You yeah. can count your steps. Mm-hmm. There's actually a real opportunity for continued innovation in this area if you look at it that yeah, way.
1: Absolutely, and preventive health, which I've included as one of my five critical shifts. If you remember that. Yes. Uh, is absolutely massive.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I. Since you mentioned preventive health, and apologies for going a little bit off topic here, but do you find that that's going to be a that, that's probably going to be the legacy of the past couple of years in terms of the change in in, in health strategy, really. I think so, yeah. Um,
1: I think it's one of those things, a bit like health inequalities, actually, that was just something that was talked about at conferences mm. for many years with uh, lots of heads nodding and you know, good intentions, but nothing actually happening. Now, health inequalities is absolutely built into healthcare policy, um, into the Health and Care Act, um, and into the subsequent policies that ICSs are developing. And it's the same thing with preventative health, really. This has to be part of the agenda. and um, There's a whole group of, of bodies, ICPs, Integrated Care Partnership, uh, Partnerships, whose role is effectively to do just that and see how we can get overall better population health
0: Mm -hmm. Because
1: they've seen if you have that, then you reduce the demand and it's demand on hospital services, which is the main thing that's making costs of healthcare go up. And you need as a policymaker to do as much as possible to reduce that. And finally, the penny is dropping that if you have better preventative health services and more investment in that, you get less obesity, you get less diabetes, you get less heart disease, you get less cancer the four big things that are most expensive, um,
0: then you know, finally
1: that link has been made.
0: I think we've skirted around this issue a little bit, but the, the State of the Nation report also uh, mentions that the NHS has invested heavily in treatments for their diseases. I think there's probably two angles to come at this from in terms of, we talked about the environmental aspects in terms of you know, what the past couple of years has has basically done to people, but in terms of the NHS being persuaded to invest into these treatments, that's because of, and this is a lesson for probably medtech to take from pharma here, is that there is these, there is the evidence there that this can work. There's, there's proven real-world data out there and that's a really important aspect for any medtech innovator to, to yeah. think about.
1: Yes, absolutely. It is all about the real-world data. That's the That's the rub of it, isn't it? Um, And it can be hard. I do sympathise with companies that struggle to get this together. I guess it's a matter of just pulling all the levers you can, like through um, clinical champions, clinical networks, um, academic health science networks, getting in there, getting that data, showing that your device, your implant, your products can make genuine life-changing um, improvements to, to patients'
0: lives. Can I just uh, ask about the the study itself? I mean, because health is a devolved issue in the UK, was this study a- across all four nations or is it focused on the NHS England? Or? This is for England. Mm-hmm. Um, it's largely England because
1: that was the data sets um, in HES that we had access to and, and we used. Um, the uh, UK is four different healthcare systems that has yeah. four different stories, really. Um, it, it might be that we look at other data uh, in another publication from uh, Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. This one is England.
0: Okay. I just wanted to clarify that for our listeners just, just in case they're from Scotland. They're just thinking, oh, my God, I've had uh, something different there or something like that. Um, I think uh, there's probably one final point to to finish on and I mean I I would probably skirted this issue as well but if you're if you were to give some advice to someone working in life sciences and pharma med tech, anyone that's developing new treatments, new devices what would you say that they should take from this report I think I would suggest
1: that they become experts in the healthcare system that they're trying to engage with
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, reps of all kinds, be they pharma or med tech, are experts in the disease area, mm-hmm. they're experts in the way of communicating the features and benefits and value proposition of the said product, yeah. and they're experts in regulatory stuff like whether it's the ABPI code or ABHI guidelines. What they are not always experts on is the system that they're trying to sell to. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been my niche. You know, I think that's why I've got a career, really, is because I've said, well, learn about this system, this one system that is your customer, and then that will yield your you results. So who are they? What do they want? How are they arranged? What are their KPIs? What are their pain points? Um, how, how would they... Why would they want to see you, and um, what are the terms of the engagement? you know all this kind of stuff uh, which when I say it to me sounds obvious, but I don't think companies, pharma or medtech necessarily do as much of it as they can. so yeah, I mean, I'm sort of selling myself and pitching myself as a as an educator here um but I think it it makes a difference definitely, and the companies that do this. That proper customer centric piece do end up making
0: waves. I mean, that's there's probably a bit of anecdotal evidence to back what you said up there. Is that you see a lot of innovators come from within the NHS because they probably not only do they know the issue on the front line, they, yeah. they, they they get to know the intricacies of who they're selling to. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's actually a really good uh, bit to finish on, Ollie. So thank you very much for your, your company today. If there's anything else you'd like to add, feel free to. I've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, Ollie, thank you very
1: much for your time. Thank you very much, Ian. Take care.